But here's one thing that I see that is true in Joshua. I think that while we have so much to learn, one thing is the story of home. And that's what I want to start us with tonight. The book of Joshua, the story of Joshua, is the story of home. Here's where my mind goes when I start thinking about this. I think of my Granny Allen when I was growing up. So that was my great-grandma. She lived in North Texas, and her home was magical to me. It epitomized comforts and the joy of childhood for my sisters and I. And I'm not, I don't think I'm overly sentimental, but when I think about her house, I feel very sentimental. It was wonderful. So in my mind's eye, in my memory, the flowers by her front door were always blooming, always. In my memory, my great uncle Charlie was always on the side of the house churning the old school ice cream maker. I could hear that salt getting moved around as he made homemade ice cream. That brown brick on the front of her house, that perfect Texas brown brick was always warm from the sun in my memory. Granny was always at the front door, always said the same thing. She'd say, give me some sugar. That means a kiss if you aren't from the South. Give me some sugar. She always had her apron around her waist. Nothing ever moved in the house. Great grandpa never even moved. Now, always sat in the exact same chair. He was terrifying. Yet, the irony is, I always felt safe in this home. This home was both a place of rest and adventure. And my childhood home, the one we actually lived in, it carries the same kind of weight. 2015 Georgetown Drive, Denton, Texas. 76201. I especially remember the memories of summer where my sisters and I would come back from like a whole day at the pool and we'd take refuge in the air conditioned house. We'd go right in and we'd open up this drawer in the kitchen that my mom had filled with little Debbies. We were not above little Debbies in the 90s, they were a staple. So we'd grab a Nutter Butter bars, go back to our room, sunburns put on Amy Grant, play with Barbies, stuff like that. That home was magical to me. But when I was 11, mom and dad let us know that we would be moving to Iowa. The night before that move, all of our furniture and all of our belongings were packed in the truck and I hid in an empty closet. And I don't know if I actually thought that mom and dad wouldn't be able to find me, but I just needed to cry. And this wasn't a cute little sentimental cry. This was an ugly, hormonal, pre-adolescent cry. Guys, I all but clawed at the walls, trying to find a way to grip the door frames, trying to find a way to not have to leave my home. And for the next year in Iowa, with my pre-adolescent hormones raging, I grieved the loss of my home. For a year, I grieved it. To a child who was on the hinge of becoming a teenager, losing my home was detrimental to me. Well, then I became an adult and I became a mom and I would look back on, on that memory and how rotten I was and how stubborn I was and I would be hard on my younger self for grieving my home for as long as I did and with so much drama. But now, 
months into studying the book of Joshua, I'm actually understanding my 11-year-old self a little bit more. The 11-year-old self whose hands and feet were all but gripping on to the door frames and clawing at the drywall, not wanting to leave my home. Here's why I am now finding some sympathy for my younger self. Because through the book of Joshua, I am finding my story. The story of Joshua sounds like my story. And the more I've studied it, the more the story of Joshua sounds like the whole big story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the story about home. And God, who is the king of the universe that we will see for the next five weeks, he has made a home for his people where they could be with him. That was the purpose of home, so that his people could be with him. So think about the very first people, Adam and Eve. The first gift that they received from God was a home in the Garden of Eden. It was a place of comfort and rest, relationship and purpose. All of those things existing at once, both comfort and rest, but also relationship, purpose, work. Their job was to dwell in the land, to dwell in this garden paradise and rule for God. They were supposed to subdue and have dominion over the land. But most of us know how this goes. We understand that they chafed under the authority of God. They bristled under it and they rebelled. And because of that, the king had to kick them out of their home. And the Bible says in Genesis 3, not that they walked out, not that they were escorted out of Eden, that they were driven out. That they were driven out of Eden. And every time I read this, it kind of breaks my heart. Because they wanted to stay. They wanted to stay in their paradise home. They wanted to be near to God, to dwell in the comfort and the goodness of Eden, but they couldn't. And so angelic guards with flaming swords were put at the front door of this paradise garden so that they would not misunderstand. You cannot come home again. You cannot enter, at least not yet, not until the problem of your rebellion has been solved. It's a pretty sad way for the story of home to begin. But it's not where the story ends. As we move through Genesis, the theme of home, it's not always super obvious, but it is a cord that runs through. It runs through the promise that we will see is given to Abraham and then Abraham's family. The promise of home is carried through all of his sons and then all the way through to Moses. Moses is the man who came to Egypt and said, let my people go, giving a job from God to free his enslaved people. And then he led them on a long journey home. Moses led them on a long journey to the promised land. This theme of home weaves through the first five books of the Bible. And that's when we meet a young guy named Joshua. Joshua was born into slavery. You ever thought about this? If you're familiar with this story, if you've read it before, this was a new thought for me. The man that we start reading about in the sixth book of the Bible, he was born in Egypt, born a slave. So 
Think about this, guys. Think of what he experienced. He did not know the garden home. He knew exile. He would have had early memories of the deliverance of the people of God. So those plagues that Moses brought, that God brought through Moses, Joshua would have remembered them, guys. He would have remembered the smell of the Nile River turning to blood. He would have remembered the sound of the locusts as they swarmed into Egypt. And maybe he would have clung to his mom's legs when the plague of darkness settled over the land. That was likely Joshua's childhood. Joshua the slave then became Joshua the exile, the nomad, the wanderer, the sojourner. And in the years following, Joshua becomes a valiant warrior. The first time that we actually read about him explicitly is in Exodus 17, 9. And it talks about this battle against the Amalekites. This is a story where Moses had to stand like up on a ridge and the guys had to hold his arms up and in his arm was the, the staff that signified the wrath of God. Here he was up here holding the, wrath, holding the staff and down there, boots on the ground, was our guy Joshua. Joshua was down there fighting the battle for God's people. The next time we read about him is Exodus 24, 13. This is the first time that Joshua is called Moses' assistant. He goes up Mount Sinai with Moses. He goes, I think, just part of the way when Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments and then descends the mountain with Moses. Just a little tidbit that is just blowing my mind is that that means that our guy Joshua wasn't part of the golden calf ceremony. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Remember, Moses went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days to, to get the law from God, to get the plan from God. He took too long for the Israelites. So they put all their jewelry, melted it, and made a calf and started worshiping this golden calf. Interesting, though. <laughs> Joshua seemingly wasn't part of that. He was on the mountain. He was waiting for Moses. This is our valiant warrior so far. So stay here with me. This is really important for us to get the context, to get into the skin of this story, of this book. Joshua would have been a young man as Moses started to tell the Israelites the thousands or even millions of people the story of God. It was out Mount Sinai that Moses got Genesis, like our Genesis from God. And then he would go and he would read it to the people of God. So picture our guy Joshua sitting in this crowd with his parents, maybe his siblings, his friends for hours listening to Genesis be read out loud. That means that he got to hear about Eden from Moses who heard about it from God. I can't help but wonder, did that make an impact on Joshua? Did that, those descriptions of perfect Eden, of that perfect home, did it stir something in him? But perhaps the most well-known story about Joshua comes a couple books later, a book that I've never done study on, Numbers chapter 13. This is one of the more iconic stories where Joshua is one of 12 spies that Moses sends out. So here are the people of Israel. They've been wandering in the desert for a short amount of time. 
They've got the word, they've got the Ten Commandments, and they're ready to enter the promised land. So that's the home that we've been talking about this whole time. The promised land, the promise given to Abraham. They're standing on the border of it. And Moses says, I'm going to send out 12 spies to go and, and find out what it's like over there. Joshua's feet were in the promised land. Those 12 spies come back and they're carrying the produce of the land. They're carrying the the fruit and the vegetables and they show everyone, look how good this land is. But then 10 of those guys say, but this land is filled with bad guys. This land is filled with these giants these people that we cannot defeat. If we go in there, we will be killed. Joshua, however, and Caleb say, no, 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 no. This is the land God has for us. This is ours. He's already given to us. This is the promise that's been passed down for generations. Joshua, our warrior, is being faithful to believe the promises of God. But the people do not go with Joshua. They side with the other 10 spies, fearing the people of the land. He had faith in God that promises would come true, but nobody else did, guys. Nobody else in that generation believed God's promises, and so they would remain homeless. Once again, we see the the punishment and the consequence of not believing God at his word has left people homeless. And we're starting to see how the Bible is the story of home. The backdrop, the scene behind Joshua as he emerges as our character is the fickle people of God with their complaints, their demands, their empty words. It contrasts greatly with Joshua But their lack of faith contrasts even more with the faithfulness of God on the brink of Canaan. So when we open to Joshua starting tomorrow morning, where we pick up this story, is a really, really exciting time for the people of God. Like you need to know that before you open it. You need to have like this spoiler alert of like, guys, this is a big deal. This is an incredibly climactic hinge moment for the people of God. So it's got like this mix of, think of like Christmas Eve as a child. Think of the excitement of breaking ground for your dream home. Or I always think of that scene in Lion King when it's like Mufasa and baby Simba and they can see all of the land. And Mufasa says, everything that the light touches will be your kingdom. That's the story we're reading about this summer. An incredibly climactic time. As we start picking up our story, you guys are going to see home is brought up right away. Home is God's idea. We need to understand that it is his gift to his children in Eden. It's his gift to his children in this story. The promise from the first pages of Genesis is not lost. It's fulfilled in the book of Joshua. This is great. This is a fun story to read. We should feel excited. But I do need to warn you that some of what we read might confuse us. 
Some of what we are going to read might even make us cringe. We have this loving, gift-giving God. We have this God who gives promises and fulfills them to his children. But do you know what you're going to read about tomorrow? That part of the plan from God is to drive out the people who live in this land. Canaan isn't empty. It's not just sitting there empty. It's full of people. And this God, our loving Veritas God, is going to open up the book of Joshua by saying, you need to be strong and courageous because you have to drive out the people who live in the land. In fact, he will instruct Joshua and the Israelites to completely destroy the Canaanites, who are the residents of Canaan, also called the promised land. He's going to tell them to devote all of them and their inhabitants and their possessions, devote them to destruction. Guys, we're going to read that God hardens hearts. There are chapters in this story that involve espionage. There are stories about bloody battles. There is even a time where corpses are hung on a tree to be made an example of. Not a go-to women's ministry Bible study. It's not a simple feel-good story. And we will be immediately invited to think critically. We should feel things. And we should behave differently as we study God's word. But before we can behave differently, before we can feel rightly, ladies, we have to bring our brains to the Bible. We can do this. When we allow each other to corporately raise the bar of expectations for us as students of the word, we will be better for it. And I will say that in this book, it is imperative. If you don't believe that you can do it, if you don't go to the word of God, first looking for what it says and what it means, you are going to have a hard time as we read about a campaign and battle after battle after battle. You're going to have a hard time getting through it. It's not this simple feel good. But I think it's going to highlight some patterns that we're invited to step away from. I think lots of times as Americans, or possibly even as women at times, we actually think too little of God's promises. We actually feel like, oh, the promises of God are these things that we can obtain, boom, overnight, right away. Promises that we can see and touch. See, sometimes I think when we think of God as a gift giver, we think of him as Santa, right? We think of him as this old, soft man who's going to give us something that will make us happier, that will give us a fix for the time, make us more comfortable. I think of what I asked Santa for two years ago. It was my Ninja blender. Do you know what's happening with that Ninja blender? It smokes, it yells, and it moves on its own. <laughs> because I have used it so much for two years, and I want a Vitamix real bad. <laughs> but I am stuck with a Ninja that has taken on a life of its own. God is not like Santa, who
who just gives us gifts that will make us more comfortable and happier for a moment. Last year, I'm just gonna keep going on this. Last year, I got an Apple Watch. Do you see said Apple Watch on my wrist? This thing was gonna make me happier, fitter. God, we are, I don't know. You know why I don't wear it? Because I don't like being criticized. When I don't move enough, it scolds me. While I'm reading my Bible, of course, not watching Netflix. I don't want to be scolded, so I put it away. God, as the gift giver, is not like that, lest he be misunderstood. And God, the promise maker, we need to make sure we understand that. When we talk about God as the promise maker and the promise keeper of the study, ladies, we are not talking about our high school boyfriend whose promise to love us could not even make it through the summer. No, I don't want to talk about it. Because <laughs> as we read this story about home, I would even encourage you, don't settle for God who is so small and so insignificant that we see him as like a realtor or an interior designer. Don't let the theme go bad like that. God, I would say, is homemaker. Oh, sorry. Realtors are great. <laughs> you bear his image real good. <laughs> I would actually say God is homemaker. That's a fun topic to think about, especially for those of you who are passionate about making your house a home, either now or in the future. When we subdue and take dominion over a place, we are bearing God's image. But guys, don't belittle who God is in the book of Joshua. He is more than that. He is warrior. He is promise keeper. But guys, ultimately, the book of Joshua shows us that God is king. God is king. A king who is taking back a land that is already his. And it's okay if you immediately feel or think, oof, that's not as fun to think about. It's true. It is harder to accept God who is king rather than those softer, lesser things. But that's why we come and work together, to work through a book that would otherwise be pretty hard to do on our own. That's why small group is so important. That's why it's so important that you keep coming here rather than just doing it on your own. Because small group and then large group teaching is a place where we will wrestle with these hard questions. We will wrestle with the truths that seem to be coming up about God. Huge questions are gonna come up like, how, how do we receive the promise of God? What's the balance? What's the tension between God giving promises and our responsibility? Or maybe how does this story even apply to us if we aren't Jews? And after we work through those hard questions, guys, I am so excited for the application questions that, that are written and that aren't to just flood in. What does this mean for me today? How does this story tell my story? How does it tell your story? Why would I care about a far, far ancient land when I live in Iowa City? Guys, we have to look for it, but it's wedged between the wars and the battles and the campaigns, between the violence that we are going to find the promises of God. Between the combat and the campaigns, guys, you're gonna have this moment of seeing the mercy of God. And it eclipses all of the dark scenes in here. 
And we will find his mercy as we start to take note that Canaan sounds a lot like Eden. And then we connect the dots that this story about home is actually about God re-Edenizing the world for his children. Taking it back to Eden, re-Edenizing, bringing back the goodness, the unity, and the fellowship of Eden. But it doesn't stop there. While this is a historical account, guys, and while it's really climactic and really exciting, and I want you to feel that, the story that you are going to start reading tomorrow is just the faintest shadow of what's to come. The excitement of the children of God receiving a promise generations old is the faintest whisper or shadow of what is to come. Because just as God's promises came true in Joshua's Joshua's day, just as he said they would through Joshua, his ultimate provision of salvation would come to fruition through the one whom Joshua points to. God is going to re-Edenize his world through Jesus, through King Jesus. So when the word of God, that second Joshua, when he came into flesh, he said, God's kingdom is at hand. And then when the word of God cried out from a cross, it is finished. The ultimate promise of salvation came and Eden was reopened again. The problem of Adam and Eve's rebellion, the problem of my rebellion and yours was fixed in that moment when the word of God spoke and we have a way home again. And that is where we live right now, guys. This is why this story matters to us. Because we live on this side of the cross, we do live in the kingdom of God. But not fully. And that's why some of you cried today. And that's why some of you have had depression the last year. And that's why some of you are lonely or angry or sick. Because while the way home has been opened to us, the kingdom has not come fully. And that's why some days feel like a battle. That's why some days we feel like we are in a war zone. Maybe at your work, maybe at your home, maybe right here, feel like you are in a war zone fighting to hear truth. Ladies, I promise you that if that is your story, actually in the way that that is your story now or in recent past or in the future, I promise you that in the book of Joshua, you will find, more than anything else, the mercy of God. And it is that kindness and that mercy of God against a backdrop of wars and combat that you will find an invitation to draw near to Christ, to cling to that mercy until the new heavens And the new earth come fully. Our promised land comes fully. And that mercy will be enough for us. So what is it for you tonight? 
Why did you sign up for this study? What is the area that you want to be strong and courageous in, as we will look at this week? Where in your life are you or someone you know starved for the mercy of God? Where do you need to find your identity as someone who is ready to fight the good fight? All with our eyes fixed forward, waiting for the king to return and bring us fully home. Let's pray. Father, I pray a weird prayer right now. I pray that we would feel like we're not home. I pray that through this study, that you would move us around just a little bit, that you would make us less comfortable in this world so that we would find courage, strength, and motivation to press on, to go further in to the promised land that you have for us. Lord, for the women who need your comfort and your mercy, I thank you ahead of time that you will bring it. And even while they are employed to fight the good fight of faith, that that whole while they would be surrendered, trusting, and looking for your mercy. Amen.